and welcome to the On The Whistle podcast. Today we have yet another World Cup preview pod and today we're casting our eyes to the north of our beautiful content as we look at Morocco and Tunisia who are both returning to the world stage once again after featuring at the 2018 World Cup and here to chat with me about both teams chances is a North African football expert making his return to the pod. It's Maher Mazahi. Maher, how are you doing today? Uh, doing well, doing well. I'm starting to get excited for the World Cup. The World Cup people are starting to rise, uh, in my opinion. So, uh, uh, yeah, seeing all the squads be released and then like no more club football now. So it's just, yeah, seven days and, and we're going to be playing football now. Um, I mean, it's very exciting. I, I have to ask the question initially. Obviously, it's it's heartbreaking for you not seeing your boys Algeria at the World Cup. But does it make up for it that your other country, Canada, is going to be at the World <laughs> Cup? How are you feeling about their chances of going to the World Cup? And how are, are you? How excited are you? It doesn't make up for it in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was difficult about Algeria not qualifying wasn't just the fact that they didn't qualify. It was the, the manner in which it was done. How Cameroon scored really in the last kick of the game. Um, and we were at home. And it seemed like qualification was wrapped up. And I think... Uh, and I think many Cameroonians will admit this too. I think over the two legs, we were the better side as well. So all of that wrapped up into, into one and the fact that this could be Riyad Mahrez's last try and this was such a great generation makes it really, really painful. Um, and I think Algeria was going to go to Qatar with real ambition, not just to make up the numbers. Uh, as for Canada, um, it's a weird one because <laughs> when I look at the squad list, there are players on this team that that I've played against, that I sort of like knew or knew of growing up, like the goalkeeper uh, Milan oh, Borjan. Right. He's a, yeah, he's a Serbian Canadian. We used to play in like Serbian tournaments with my brother and, and his friends, and he would be there uh, in like three hours away from where I live in Hamilton. Or um, uh, the one of the strikers, Lucas Cavallini, who's expected not to start but be on the bench, but he's a good player. I played against him in the uh, in the high school championship. Uh, he was from a high school in Toronto and we we're from Windsor and it was my job to mark him. I was a defensive midfielder and he was a striker and he was so good just at that age at 17 years old. And I was, I think 19 and I was much older and much stronger, but he just kept, he just toyed with me. So uh, it's just interesting and cool seeing players that you sort of knew of and grew up around uh, that and know that they're going to be competing on the world stage. Amazing. I mean, in another world, Maher, this could have been you kind of suiting Imagine. up for, for the Canadian <laughs> national team. No, <laughs> but, never, but, never close enough. <laughs> but enough of Canada. We are here to talk today about Morocco and Tunisia. Uh, and I, I, we'll start off with Morocco, who I think are a really kind of interesting team. Obviously, you know, their well-documented rise in football, both in the men's and women's games and how much kind of investment they put into football is is kind of well documented but one of the interesting things is you know them like Cameroon like Tunisia like Ghana have all changed managers since the AFCON earlier this mm. year um, Morocco sacking Valid Halodizic who has now got a very very sad record of managing three teams to the World Cup but not managing any of them at the World Cup um, but he's been replaced by Walid Regagi, who's an excellent manager who you saw win the CAF Champions League final with Widad, as well as doing the double, winning the Batola Pro earlier this year. Um, and, you know, when he faced off against friend of the pod, Pizzo Mosimani, he got the better of him earlier this year. You know, what do you see as, you know, him bringing to the team that's different from, from Vahid? Um, 
Vahid, uh, I've used this metaphor before. He wants to be pilot, co-pilot, and air control. He's a complete disciplinarian. He really wants to run his operation from top to bottom, um, whether that's um, how much playing time you get, the squads that he picks, um, and then even stupid things like how you train. Um, famously, Nusser Mazraoui, the Bayern Munich uh, fullback slash midfielder, he was ejected from the group. This is according to him. We didn't get Vahid's version of the story, but he says that he was ejected out of the group because, uh, well, there was a little bit of underlying tension. And then eventually Vahid told him to go get a, a drink for a water break. And he said, I don't want to get a drink. And from that day on, he was never called up again. So, yeah, it was it could be as trivial as that. So obviously there were there was underlying tension. There was other factors in that. But just to show you the extent at which Vahid wants things done his way. Um, Walid is much more of a federator, much more of a, he'll, he's going to bring people together. Um, the, infamously as well, Vahid had kicked out uh, Hakim Ziyech out of the group. He had problems with Nusair Mazraoui. He had problems with Amin Harit. Um, Walid, I think, was brought in because not only was the, the federation and the players, I think, starting to get sick of Vahid, and they really wanted uh, to bring in the best top quality players that Morocco had for this World Cup, but also the supporters as well. I think they were playing a brand of football that wasn't the greatest. And if you're going to make drastic decisions like that, you had better be knocking people's socks off. You know, Vahid wasn't doing that. They were not necessarily uh, playing the greatest football. And, um, and when... That's not enough. Basically, that's not enough to, to kick people like Hakim Ziyech out. Sorry, sorry, my cat's interrupting the, the video. Um, th that's essentially what it is. So Walid is much more of a federator. He's better with the press. He's not as adversarial. He's much more of a unifier within the group. Uh, but tactically, I think they're pretty similar. They're both going to be, they would have both been playing 4 3 threes, pretty pragmatic, practical, balanced, not too offensive, not too defensive. Um, possession-based football, pressing. Um, I think tactically, they're actually pretty similar. That's, that's interesting. And and obviously, the biggest and most obvious difference is, like you mentioned, Hakim Ziyech and Nusrat Mazrai coming back into the side, which, you know, two of Morocco's most talented players. And I suppose my question is, is you know, it's brilliant to see them become part of the team again. But now you have this interesting problem where you have, you know, arguably Morocco's three most talented players all playing on that right flank because you throw in Ashraf Hakimi, arguably Morocco's best player, one of Africa's best players, who's also a right back, right wing back, as Mazraoui is. You know, how do you think and will he try and fit all three into into that starting eleven come the World Cup? So, so what I initially thought when he when it was announced that Mazraoui was coming back, and it was around the time that the the champion the CAF Champions League was being played, so I was in Morocco, spoke to a few different people. They told me that. They might play Mazraoui in the midfield role as a defensive midfielder and have him cover fullbacks as they bomb up, um, which I thought could work, actually. But what Regragi did is as soon as he arrived, he had a conversation with Hakimi and Mazraoui, and he asked them, I'm going to play both of you at fullback. Who wants to play on the left? Who wants to play on the right? And Mazraoui actually rose his hand, raised his hand and he said, I'd like to play on the left. And it, it's worked really well. They played in those two uh, pre-World Cup friendlies that they played so far um, against Chile and I believe against Paraguay. Uh, Mazraoui played on the left and, hey, he's done an incredible job. He was nearly man of the match on, on for both matches. 
So it's great because you keep Hakimi on that strong right wing side that he likes to bomb up on. And Ziyech is a winger that would like to cut in anyway. So they really complement each other very well. Hakimi is going to keep the width and, and hug the touchline and Ziyech is going to cut in on that right flank. And on the other side, Mazraoui actually, even as a right footed left back, gets up pretty well and, and combines pretty well with Sofian Bufal on the other side. So it hasn't been as much of a clash as... Uh, as I thought it could be. And that's actually one of the things that the public was really impressed with Walid Regragi with. Immediately, he found a solution for the left-back uh, position and uh, found a way to get all of his best players on the pitch. Yeah, that's interesting to see. And, and that's the pressure that will come on to Walid is how he answers these questions, you know, mm-hmm. and Morocco have looked good. And obviously, one of the things that, you know, strikes me always about Morocco and, and African nations as a whole is oftentimes, I feel like African nations, we have amazing talent we have amazing players, but oftentimes it's the federations that let us down. You know, thinking back to like 2014, the Ghana, Ghanaian FA flying, you know, millions of dollars in cash to, you know, help the players out and all of this. Uh, but, you know, this is one thing that doesn't happen with with Morocco in the same way, does it? You know, in terms of the preparation, in terms of how much support they get from the FA, you know, how much of a difference do you think that makes compared to some of the other African nations where we're still not quite sure, you know, there's still questions around finances, you know, how much of a difference, particularly in a World Cup, where preparation is so at a premium with how little time there is, how how much will that aid them in their kind of preparation for it? Well, it's key. And in terms of preparation, the North Africans actually have even more of an advantage because they played in the FIFA Arab Cup, which took place in November 2021. Um, FIFA, of course, did away with the Confederation Cup, which was always like a, a one year prior to kickoff test run of all the stadiums in the host country. And instead of the Confederation Cup, they they played this Arab Cup in the middle of the calendar last year. And Morocco played, Algeria played, Tunisia played, Egypt played. And of course, Algeria and Egypt haven't qualified, but Morocco and Tunisia did well in that tournament. They both lost to Algeria, who were the champions, but they they did very well. And a lot of those players that made up the squads, especially in Tuni- the Tunisian national team, they're going to be there again. And so I always wondered, like, this, how much of a mental advantage is that actually going to the country, playing in the stadiums? I don't know if we can quantify it, but I do think it adds an element of preparation that other teams in this World Cup won't have. Uh, Walid Regragi coached in Qatar uh, again, so he knows a lot of people there. He knows the facilities. He knows the temperatures. He knows all of that. Um, a few. So, so my point is, I think Morocco, even on top of them having a competent federation have that extra uh, advantage as well. That said, Walid Regragi only came into this job two months prior to the World Cup. So in that sense, I'm scared that he won't be able to implement his ideas uh, or he won't have as much time to implement his ideas as opposed to other coaches. And in that sense, they might be underprepared. Um, but... He one thing that he spoke about is that how how great of a job the federation's done in terms of setting up Zoom calls. Apparently, he's been doing a lot of preparation work virtually, so communicating with his players, telling them what he wants, sending them slides, uh, all of these things. Uh, I know like the Danish federation uses AI apparently to to prepare for for some of their opponents. I don't think the Moroccan federation is quite there, but yeah, obviously they're. I think they're the the best federation in Africa. Uh, they have the best infrastructure in Africa. Uh, and as a result, I think they're going to be in tip-top shape. I think Walid right now, that his players know what he wants to do, but there's always that question of can they put it on, on the can they play on the pitch? Um, if he had more time, I wouldn't have that doubt. And if they had more friendly matches in their legs, 
but because they've only get played two friendly matches, they're going to play three before the first World Cup match. Uh, I'm not sure that it's it's going to be enough time. Mm. I mean, we've spoken about Hakim Ziyech and, and Ashraf Hakimi and Mazraoui kind of as these kind of three talismanic players uh, in, in this Moroccan team. And I see kind of elsewhere that kind of, with the exception of perhaps Poufal, he's kind of an incredible player player. It's very functional, particularly the midfield in terms of allowing these players around them. But are there any kind of younger players who you think this potentially could be a breakout tournament for outside of kind of those three big names? Yeah, absolutely. There's a midfielder named Azdin Unahi, who I don't think many people outside of uh, African football or maybe French football know of, but he's really, really good. He comes from the state-of-the-art Mohammed um, Six Academy in, in Saleh in Morocco, uh, like uh, Naif Aguer does, like uh, Ahmed Reda Tignauti, like Youssef Nasiri from Sevilla. So like three of his other teammates. <clears throat> he's only 22 years old. And he's a mid... It's a weird profile in midfield because he's like a midfield dribbler. Usually when you're playing in central midfield, your first instinct is to always be aware of your surroundings, you know, distribute, play, play the ball, like play long passes. That's not really his strong suit. I mean, he can do that, but his strong suit is dribbling. So he'll take the ball from midfield and carry it forward. Um, in league uh, this year, uh, as of now, he's only trailing Lionel Messi in the amount of dribbles completed. And he plays for a smaller club, a club like Angers, which uh, which doesn't really monopolize too much of possession. So I think Azdin Unahi is somebody that's going to catch a lot of people's eye. I don't want to compare him to Luka Modric, but I think he's kind of Morocco's answer to Luka Modric in terms of he can break a press, he can be press resistant, he can advance the ball and then get the ball to somebody like Hakim Ziyech, who's much more uh, suited to providing a, a, a key pass in the final third of the pitch. Mm. I mean, he's one who I've been watching, a really, really exciting player. And it's interesting that you mentioned Luka Modric because obviously in the first game of the World Cup, hopefully both of them will be lining up against each other mm-hmm. as as Morocco take on Croatia. You know, they're in a group with, you know, your aforementioned Canada side, Croatia and Belgium. You know, on paper, obviously, Belgium and, and Croatia, the big heavy favorites for this, mm-hmm. you know, the big European giants. You know, how, how will Morocco feel going into this this group, particularly as they have to play Croatia and Belgium before they play Canada, which would be the game in which, you know, they would be targeting three points. How do you feel about their chances going into it? Well, I think any objective or healthy supporter uh, in Morocco, um, I think they understand that they're not favorites to get out of the group. I mean, Croatia was second in the last World Cup and Belgium was third, I think. Um, that said... I think there's a general acknowledgement that those two sides are aging. Uh, there, I think, I think many people, not just in Morocco, but around world football, feel like maybe they're starting to edge past their prime. Um, and Morocco is on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe, uh, sorry, to, uh, Canada is on the other end of the spectrum. Whereas there may be a younger side, first World Cup, maybe they're not quite into their prime yet, so they're they're much more of a, a rising asset. Morocco feels like this is the right time for them. And uh, there's another thing about Morocco. And Algeria has this too. Ghana has this. Nigeria, definitely in the 90s, is that they're not really intimidated by the the bigger nations at World Cups. Um, Morocco has good results in the World Cup against West Germany, Portugal, England, you know, they, they're used to holding their own against the major nations. Usually they play up to the competition and then they play down to the competition. So if you look at the previous World Cup, they they, 
they held their own against Spain. They actually played better than Spain, in my opinion. Uh, then, then they lo- they lose to Iran. You know, that's like the frustrating thing I think that many Moroccan supporters feel. So I don't think they're going to be intimidated. I don't think they're going to be scared of either of those nations. Uh, uh, a superstitious Moroccan supporter might tell you, actually, we're going to do well against those nations and then we're going to lose to Canada. That's how things usually go. So I think the main thing for them is going to be finding their level, playing consistently at that level, not not giving them too much respect, not being scared of them, uh, but playing at a consistent level when they play against Canada. Um, I don't think they're actually going to be too, too scared of Belgium or Croatia. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, one of the great frustrations of that 2018 World Cup was seeing how close it was for Iran and Morocco both to get ahead of Portugal and Spain. And then they both missed out kind of in last minute instances, you know, Spain scoring that was a 92nd minute equalizer against Morocco, yeah. which is heartbreaking. Well, I mean, if you know, we want to move on to, to Tunisia, but if you want to keep up, listener, with everything going on in this World Cup, everything all things African, you know, whether it's, you know, analysis like today or interviews with Africa's biggest stars, the likes of Kanu or Benny McCarthy, who we've come, who we've had on this podcast before, make sure to subscribe to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at OTW underscore podcast. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and wherever you get your podcast feed by looking up on the whistle podcast. But, you know, I want to move on to Tunisia, but before we do, I want to ask you a slightly more general question kind of as a North African um, you know, this tournament is being held in in Arab world for the first time ever in Qatar. And, and there's been a lot of bad press around Qatar hosting, particularly from Western media. And in most of the cases, very rightly so, whether it's, you know, the, the lives lost in the construction of the stadiums, forced labor laws, and, you know, some of the restrictive laws that are in place in Qatar. But there's also a lot of positives from this World Cup, particularly as it's, you know, a new country, a new region that's being represented as hosting it. You know, as someone from you know, North Africa that has a lot of links to the Arab world, you know, obviously they're very, very different. Algeria and, you know, Morocco and Tunisia and, and Qatar are very, you know, geographically very far apart, but culturally there are, there are some, you know, similarities. How, what does it mean for North Africans for the World Cup to be hosted in a Muslim country and an Arab country? Yeah, I think, I think that part of it is special. And as you pointed out, any kind of boycott or protest usually uh i mean towards the qatar 2022 world cup there's usually a north east sorry north south east west divide uh to them um i've been looking i've been searching i've been asking around for world cup boycotts or protests from the global south but i haven't found uh too much at all um and that's very much the case in algeria and morocco and tunisia i think they these are countries that didn't discover what the kafala system was in 2013 or 2014. They knew what the situation was. Uh, we've had migrants going over there, living over there for the last 20, 30 years. You know, we didn't find our outrage about the system uh, <laughs> a few years back. Um, so yeah, they. I think the the main frustration for a lot of people from North Africa, for a lot of Arabs, I think I can generalize and say, is that they feel like the criticism isn't really in good faith. So when you say things like not a footballing country, what does that mean? Is India and China, are they footballing countries? Does that mean we won't be able to host World Cups over there in the future? Um, when you say things like, oh, you bought the right to host the World Cup. Well, so did Germany, so did 1998, so did France. Um, so they feel like, and even the some of the Guardian's reporting, um, when they reported those initial numbers of 6,000 or 7,000 migrants, um, 
dead since the attribution since the since Qatar was hosted the rights to to host the World Cup. Um, they feel like that number wasn't accurate. It it's not number of people that died on construction sites. It's number of total people. And when you understand that there's two million uh, migrants that live in Qatar, that number is surely wrong. There's no way that number is. It has to be underdeclared. Everybody would say that it has to be a triple or, or quadruple that. So and so so there's a lot of frustration that things are not really uh, accurately criticized or they're not criticized in good faith and they feel like there are Orientalist or racist aspect, aspects towards all of that. That said, there's no denying that uh, migrant workers coming from Southeast Asia, sometimes from East Africa, I think uh, were exploited in the previous kafala system. And I, I think, again, Qatar will be the first to tell you that there are still remnants of that kafala system and there are still employers that still abuse and exploit some of these workers as well. The minimum wage of $250 per month is not nearly enough. Uh, workers still can't uh, congregate, form unions, uh, collectively bargain. So there's still a ways to go. So I think overall, many people understand that there's the situation has improved. Many are frustrated with a lot of the Western critique, which they feel was not fair. Uh, but there is also good faith criticism in that, yeah, something does need to change and that um, thankfully there are there have been some incremental changes. But overall, there is a little bit of pride that this is the first Arab World Cup or whatever that means, uh, even though <laughs> it's it's very it's a very broad definition. But yeah, there is a little bit of pride uh, in that as well. And you're going to see a lot of people uh, from Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, who are living in Qatar, supporting North African and African teams in this tournament as well. So there's going to be an added element of home support away from home. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember watching like the CAF Super Cup final last, was it last year between Raja and, and Alakli? Yep. And there yep. were so many Alakli fans yep. and Raja fans, but yep. I just couldn't believe how many Alakli fans were actually there in, in Qatar. So I was looking forward to, to that. But I mean, let's move on to, to the other North African team. We have Tunisia. And, you know, Tunisia, I always laugh and find funny because, you know, if you could have given me a Tunisian route to qualifying to this World Cup, it would be playing against a team that's much more exciting than them with much more, you know, attacking players who score a comical own goal. And then Tunisia just shut down the tie and just play the most boring but efficient football that you've ever seen. And that's exactly what happened when they knocked out uh, Mali. You know, Sissoko scored that comical own goal in the first leg. And Tunisia just didn't look back from there. They just shut down the game. Um, and, you know, do you feel like coming into the World Cup with Jalal Kedri, is the new manager, uh, you know, are we going to expect anything different from Tunisia? Or is it going to be the same old difficult to be? you know, very, very smart football, streetwise kind of football that we saw in the 2018 World Cup, we saw in the AFCON, and, and you know, are we expecting the same? So I, I don't want to be too crass or too rude, but I do think we're going to be expecting more of the same, honestly. Like, this is just like Cam... That's what I'm expecting from Cameroon, too. I'm expecting them to be physical, not very creative, not very technical. I'm expecting... Tunisia to be like you say streetwise I think that's a good way of putting it um I think if you were gonna make a list or a ranking of the 20 or sorry of the 32 squads that are gonna be playing in this world cup and you put them out to neutral journalists I think they would rank Tunisia near the bottom uh in Africa I think we're more familiar with some of their talents people like Ali Ma'loul or Frigeni Sassi that means nothing to a European fan or Yusuf Msekni 
to us, I think we understand. We saw what they did in the CAF Champions League, and we know that these are good players. We've seen what they've done in in the African Cup of Nations. Um, so I don't. I thought. I think from the outside they're going to be underrated. People are going to look on their at their squad and they're going to trash them. Uh, we kind of know that these are they have a lot of experienced players. Like I said, players like Ali Malul, Fergani Sassi, Yusuf Msakni, Wahbi Khazali, Naim Sliti. Uh, they actually have an okay squad. It is it's, it is also an aging squad. And like Morocco, I think they have a problem in attack. They don't really have an out and out number nine that's consistently played there and that's done a great job for two, three, four years. Saifuddin Jaziri is an option. Wahbi Khazali is more of an attacking midfielder that, that's asked to deputize there. Hissam Jbali, okay, he's playing in Denmark. He's been part of the national team for four or five months. Not a great option, in my opinion. Taha Yassin Khnisi, five years ago, six years ago, that might have excited me. He's had, like, too many knee injuries and surgeries and lost a lot of speed, and he's just a good penalty specialist now. So Tunisia really do lack an out-and-out striker. I think they know that. I think they know that they don't have a lot of speed in their team. And so what they're going to do is they're going to they're going to play compact, uh, try not to concede, try to score on set pieces. They have uh, Dylan Braun and Montessar Talbi in the central defense who are pretty decent at set pieces. Um, try to win a penalty, frustrate Denmark and France, uh, nick a win against Australia and, and squeak into the, the, the knockout stages. But that really, I think, is the story of the World Cup is they need to make it to the knockout stages. This is going to be their sixth participation. Morocco has been to the knockout stages. Algeria has been to the knockout stages. They're the only team in the Maghreb that hasn't done it, despite their consistent qualifying. I think they're really going to be hungry to, to try and do that now. Yeah, and, and kind of, you know, that's something that always struck me, even at the AFCON, is just that lack of, of a center forward. And, you know, it's exciting to see Msakni kind of in the squad and, and playing. But, you know, they, yeah, there is a real lack of, of goal threat. And kind of, again, you're saying that, you know, people particularly from in the West are kind of are unfamiliar with some of their players. And, you know, I particularly think of the ones who, yeah, like you said, did well in the CAF Champions League, you know, Ben Ramdan and, and for Jenny yeah. Sassi, players like that. But, you know, for me, the key player in this team and has been for so long is, is um, Wabi Khazri, you know, in terms of the quality he brings. And, and there's very few players that I've seen who step up so consistently mm. for their national team. You know, how important is he to, to this Tunisian squad? Yeah, he, he's unfortunately over the last three, four years, 70, 80% of the time he's been played as a striker and that's not his position. He's usually, you know, a winger. That's how he came up, you know, through Bastia, Saint-Étienne, uh, many other clubs in, in Ligue 1. Um, but what I like about him as a winger is that he is a goal-scoring threat and he's and his end product is so good. You know, if you put him in the final third, he has the ball, he has options, to, to supply, he's going to make the right decision nine times out of 10. And that's not necessarily the case for many North African uh, attacking midfielders. Wahabi Khaziri was schooled correctly uh, growing up in France. He will make that right decision. His end product is there, which is probably why they use him as a false number nine, but I don't like it. Um, as a false number nine, he can harry defenders. He can, you know, make himself a nuisance, but he doesn't have the height. He doesn't have the physicality to truly challenge other center halves. Um, but yeah, Wahbi Khaziri definitely, I think, uh, going to be one of the leaders in attack alongside Yusuf Msakni. Um, again, is this going to be their last World Cup? I think so. They're both around 31, 32 years old. I don't see them playing on to, to 36. I already see a drop in their physical form. Um, but 
that kind of, I wonder too, like how much of that is a factor, the fact that it would be their last World Cup, how much increased motivation does that give them? Everybody's talking about it with Lionel Messi, but I wonder, <laughs> I wonder about Wahabi Khazari and Yusuf Misakmi. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, one of the things that strikes me is, like you said, this is a really, really experienced team. And, and you know, that can't be underplayed. You know, it was very exciting to see the young, exciting teams, you know, like Canada or the USA that have a lot of, you know, attacking talent. But ultimately, you know, World Cups, you know, and, and this kind of tournament is won by experience. And we saw that at the AFCON, you know, Tunisia had a dreadful group stage, you know, coming third behind the Gambia and Mali. And then they went and, you know, pulled off this tactical masterclass to knock out Nigeria, who at that point were by far and away the best team in Cameroon. You know, they blew away the group stage, um, you know, and, you you know, you're based in France at the moment. You know, they're in their group with Denmark and Australia. There's been a lot of, you know, bad press around France and bad news around the French camera. We all know what can happen to France at a World Cup. You know, they win it or they go bust. You know, how do you feel for Tunisia playing in this group against a very, very strong Danish team, you know, as well as this French team? Is is there a, is there a layer of extra incentive for, for Tunisians being, you know, former French colony players like Wabi Khazri, you know, grew up playing in France and that's where a lot of their players have come through in Liga. You know, but also, do you think that they can cause the upset against this French team that, you know, potentially, you know, could win the World Cup or could implode? Yeah, so let me let me address the former colony uh, aspect of it first, because this is something that I've been speaking to many Tunisians about. If this was Algeria, France in a group stage match, this would be the second coming. There would be nonstop media coverage of it. Um, there would be barbs already traded by now. There would be huge political debates in France and Algeria about the match, about what they're going to do and this and this and the match itself, the French national anthem would be booed. It would be almost like a, a football war. That's not the case for this match for Tunisia, France. And it's, it's, it's mostly has to do with the, the aspect of the colonization. Um, you know, Algeria was colonized in 1830. Morocco and Tunisia were colonized later. Uh, Tunisia, I believe 1891. Uh, then the aspect of the liberation movement, uh, Tunisia was much more in diplomacy, much more in the United Nations. That's not to say that they didn't fight and that there were no people that died fighting the, the French. That is the case. And uh, there is still an uneasy relationship, but it's now nowhere near to what's going on between Algeria and France. Um, Algeria, they lost you know hundreds of thousands, some say a million, million and a half people over the course of 130 years. Uh, the, the war of independence was bloody. Uh, uh, it wasn't, a, to, Morocco and Tunisia were protectorates. Algeria was a French department. It was part and parcel of France. And that's what made the divorce so ugly and so dirty. So it doesn't have that dimension that an Algerian match would have. And Mor Tunisia and France have played against one another four times. Algeria and France only once, but that match was a fiasco. It was interrupted in the 70th minute because there was a pitch invasion and the French national anthem was booed and all that. So it doesn't have that kind of dimension. That said, it's not a match like any other. It's not like a match as if they were playing like a, a Germany who was a world champ. Yes, French are the defending champions as well, but they are former colonizers. It's not like in Algeria, but it still does mean something a little bit extra. And one thing that's being a little bit overlooked is Tunisia has the biggest diaspora of any of the North Africans in Qatar. They have 30,000 people. They're going to be, they're going to have home support away from home. The Algerians are going to come and support them, especially against France, <laughs> and so will the Moroccans. Um, 
I, I seriously fear that France is going to be playing three away matches in the group stages. I think that there is a good chance that their national anthem might be booed, uh, definitely in the match against Tunisia, but maybe in those three group stages as well. And that's going to be a huge political debate here in France. Um, so this is an aspect of things that we're not really thinking about. Same thing with Denmark. Denmark has been the team and the federation that's been the most outspoken against Qatar uh, prior to this World Cup. And I wonder, uh, we still don't know how many native Qataris are going to make it out to these matches, but I wonder, is that going to have an effect? Are they going to feel like outsiders when they're playing in Qatar? These are things, these are dynamics that I've been thinking about recently that I didn't really think about a, a month or two ago. Uh, that I think could perhaps have on-field ramifications. On on paper, on the pitch, there's no doubt that Tunisia and France, or sorry, Denmark and France are the stronger sides. France have had a lot of fiascos with Pogba and the blackmailing scandal, and you know him putting Juju on Kylian Mbappe, and uh, even like a few years ago with Adrian Rabiot's mother criticizing other players from the press box. It's just so, so messy with France, you know, Giroud and Benzema gossiping about one another. It's like, they feel like little kids half the time. Uh, they've also suffered a lot of injuries. I think that the main crux of France's strength uh, in 2018 was that midfield of Pogba, Conte, Matuidi. None of them are going to be playing this World Cup. Uh, who's going to be playing in midfield? Chouameni, Genduzi, whoever it is, they're not going to be experienced you know they're not going to be the strength of this French national team but they do have that quality and attack of Griezmann uh, Mbappe Benzema that I think is probably the best in the world so um, yeah overall they'll be outclassed on paper and on the pitch but I just wonder if some of those extra sporting elements can tilt uh, the, the chances in Tunisia's way to at least nick draws against Denmark and, and France. I think if there was any countries in the world that could use all of those kind of extra factors in their favor. Aside from maybe Egypt, it would be Tunisia. Because I think those two are just the absolute experts at kind of, you know, making games into an absolute mess, taking It's about the intangibles. Absolutely. For Tunisia, uh, it's about the intangibles. And that seems like a cop-out sometimes, but for people like you and me who know this Tunisian national team, it is not a cop-out. It's about how much extra time they're going to take when they're down for cramps. It's about how much they're going to whine about the referee. It's about all of these things that you think, okay, that's not going to make a big deal in a match, but it does with Tunisia. And, and even more so, you know, again, these are factors that don't play as much, particularly in the European game, but in the club game as much when you have so much time to mm. prepare, when you have teams mm. that can develop real style. But in the international game, when, you know, these, yeah, absolutely. You know, we often talk about how set pieces are so much more important in the international game, but so are these intangibles. So are your capacity to wind up teams and get on their case and, yeah, really put pressure on them. And, and we saw, you know, Germany struggle with that last World Cup when the pressure was on. They eventually, you know, lo lost their heads against South Korea. And maybe we'll we'll see something similar. Um, so, I mean, I'm excited, you know, Tunisia is not a team I'm usually excited about, but I, you know, I do love seeing them at the World Cup and just being an absolute thorn in the side of, you know, team. last year was particularly England. They were an absolute nightmare to play against. Um, but no, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Maher, for for speaking to us. You know, again, that World Cup fever is starting starting to settle in and really, really looking forward to it. So thank you so much for coming on the pod and, and sharing your thoughts. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure, Alistair. <laughs>